Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Russian attacks continue to intensify in Ukraine. We'll get an inside look at what the city of Lviv looks like from Matthew Best, freelance journalist who's over there. Liberal government has reached an informal deal with the NDP to stay in power till 2025. Now, this is an exchange for a pledge to act on key issues advocated by the New Democrats. What are the details? Well, we'll fill you in on that as well. And was the trucker convoy really about vaccine mandates? Great story, investigative reporting from Justin Ling as he joins us on the program. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Developments in Ukraine. Uh, there are talks that are going on right now. Uh, we're not sure how productive they've been. But uh, in uh, the latest report we have right now, Ukraine says its forces have retaken a strategically important suburb of Kiev as Russia squeezed other areas near the capital. Uh, Sherry Preston has details. Russia said to be resorting to new tactics as the war in Ukraine drags on. At least eight people were killed in the deadliest missile strike so far in the capital of Kiev at a shopping mall. In Russia, an online publication may have accidentally revealed the toll the invasion has had on the Russian military. ABC's Ian Panel has more from Kiev. The most read pro-Kremlin newspaper for a while appearing to report online that almost 10,000 Russian soldiers had been killed in this war and far more had been injured. Now, that is by far much higher than any official figures. But shortly after, here's where the mystery kicks in, that number suddenly disappeared from this article on their website, with the paper then later claiming that they'd actually been hacked. Ukrainian officials say they have retaken a strategically important suburb of Kiev as Russian forces continue squeezing other areas near the capital. The embattled southern port city of Mariupol has been decimated, but leaders there have refused to lay down their arms and surrender. I'm Sherry Preston, ABC News. Uh, freelance uh, journalist uh, Matthew Best is uh, in uh, Ukraine, in Lviv. Uh, been there for quite some time. We had him on the program a few days ago to try to give us an update on what's going on. And he joins us again this morning as there are new developments happening uh, both on the ground and, and hopefully uh, in the the talks going on between the Russian and Ukraine authorities. Uh, Matthew, thanks for uh, being with us once again. I hope you're doing well and staying safe. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm great here, Bill. Uh, thanks for asking. We are currently under an air raid alert, however. So if my app goes off, uh, your listeners might get to hear what it sounds like uh, about every six hours over here. Now, you've been there for a while, and I, I, I know you sent me some notes about some of the other uh, things that you've been doing, some of the people you've been talking to. And uh, let's start with that, uh, the air raids, which I guess are pretty much a common occurrence where you are in Lviv right now. How, how are they being received? When the, when the sirens go off, how do people react to that? They react. I mean, it's really indifference. You will see a few people uh, start to seek out shelter. I, I'm not sure who they are, if the people who've come from the front and maybe they're uh, more more vigilant about this. But most people just go about their daily life. Sort of a really loud alarm clock that goes off through the city and everybody just kind of hits their mental snooze on it, keeps going about their day. There's very little reaction uh, from the vast majority of the population. Does that surprise you when you when you saw that response and that reaction? I mean, this is a, a war. Uh, you know the, that usually means there's a, a, an imminent missile attack that that could be happening in their neighborhood. They just don't really know. But uh, is is it their their steely resolve that, that's going on here? I think there's a combination of the steely resolve, which we see every day, and part of it is, I think, a, a bit of a cry wolf mentality from what the air raids symbolize. There's only been one successful strike anywhere near Lviv so far, which was at the uh, Yavorov training base, uh, closer to the Polish border, really, than to Lviv, and otherwise, all the other air raid alerts have been 
nothing uh, except the all clear, whether it's 20 minutes later or two hours later, sometimes five hours later. So I think it's gotten to the point where people just feel like they need to go about their daily lives. The city does shut down. Um, banks will close, uh, kitchens and restaurants will close and stuff like that. And that causes big lines outside later when people are waiting to get things, get food, get money. But other than that, it doesn't really interrupt things at all. Which is surprising as I, as I read your notes about this. And, uh, you know, as you were describing it, Matthew, what struck me is the similarity between this and, and go back to, well, the Gulf War, of course, the, you know, that George W. Bush was involved in, senior that is. And, you know, we saw all these North American reporters, I'm sure you remember this too, uh, in Israel, uh, and you, the Scud missile attacks that were happening on a pretty regular basis. And oftentimes we'd be watching, uh, you know, a number of reporters and, and you'd hear these sirens in the background. You think, my God, that must be terrible. I, I guess people are just getting used to it now and, and figure, is, is it almost a sense of resignation? If it's going to happen, it's going to happen? That's exactly it. I mean, uh, we have, of course, our, our panels uh, where journalists and, and others communicate through the press center stuff. And, you know, somebody said it, I think, yesterday, and it really just sort of summed up what the resignation of if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, which was, I'll worry when my building starts shaking. If, for whatever reason, Putin does the worst and, and goes, uh, you know, nuclear, we're gone anyways. Um, otherwise, the strikes have been precise enough that unless they're aimed at you, you're you're kind of going to be okay it's i mean it's a war but it's not too concerning which is surprising yeah it's it's a different atmosphere than i think a lot of people would have envisioned but but as you wrote uh, there are parts of the city uh, where you are in Lviv right now that you wouldn't know there's a war going on i mean everything's fine people are going about their business Uh, it's it's business as usual for many of them it absolutely is. I mean, Lviv is a very cosmopolitan city. This is a, a city that's passed through the hands of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Poland, and now Ukraine. And it has this uh, a kind of a cultural center to it. And it really is reflected everywhere in the streets and everywhere in the people who walk those streets. So there's this sort of joie de vivre that's extending throughout the city that's not just resignation or a stiff upper lip to the war, but really just people enjoying the day and enjoying the moment whatever that moment happens to be whether they're going through the city taking their kids for a walk or out with their partners uh walking their grandma around or taking her to church going out to a restaurant that excitement is always there we even saw it in a, in a shelter the other day when i went down uh, to see what the spirit was like in a in the shelter underneath the press center and there uh, a young man uh Ukrainian. I, I couldn't understand what he was saying or what he was singing, but he just broke out a guitar and started playing, and there was a, a massive sing-along right there in the shelter. Totally bizarre to, to just picture this in our minds that you know, they're, they're carrying on right now and, and trying to do the best they can, but the, as you mentioned, there are still signs. There's sandbags and you know, over basement windows, uh, mm-hmm. uh, protections around some of the, uh, you know, maybe the historic statues, etc. around Lviv. So they're, they're aware and they are taking precautions, but they're not letting it, I guess, overtake them. Absolutely. Uh, The protections are there. I mean, everyone here, I'll say this, everyone here does feel it's going to come and that it's just a matter of time. But the protections we see are really, um, so some fortifications for the basements that if there's a basement that has sort of a a more elevated basement that has windows into the street, you'll see sandbags in front of those to make sure that anything's down there, including people, are protected from any blast or debris that might happen. The statuary at churches, and there are beautiful churches here, they're absolutely stunning and breathtaking, um, are, are wrapped up very carefully. 
to preserve the cultural heritage of the city. Those things obviously can't take shelter. So you do see um, this sort of split city, one that's militarized and protecting itself and gearing up for the inevitable, and the other that's just going about the day like there's not a war farther east. Matthew, are the people that you've talked to, are, are they following what's going on? I know that uh, you mentioned that you were at one press briefing, I guess the French ambassador was talking, uh, raising the specter of the nuclear issue that you just brought, talked about a couple of minutes ago, uh, and possible uh, supply chain uh, assistance and things like that. Are, are, are they checking these? Are they watching this? Is it, is it uh, you know, is it stealing them even further to think, hey, help is on the way, or is it just shrugging the shoulders and say, if it happens, it happens there too? Well, they, I mean, the people here absolutely do follow closely, and the people around the world follow closely. The, the press, of course, spreads out uh, in, in great flocks as soon as these press conferences are done, carrying the news to Germany, France, Canada, of course. So the people around the world know, and the people here very much know, and they all uh, communicate with each other as well on unofficial channels, so through Telegram or through uh, WhatsApp or text messages. And they share the news of what's happening you know, in the cities at the front and also at the rear and what can be expected to come. Um, and on the subject of relief, we actually got this briefing today and I'll let your uh, listeners know about it. So we heard uh, just earlier before I came on that there was, um, you know, a, a desperate attempt to, to relieve Mariupol. And we've been told today mm -hmm. just now that a convoy of buses with the humanitarian aid has been dispatched from uh, Zaporizhia to uh, Mariupol and will organize a corridor coming out of that besieged city to move people uh, farther west to safety. Uh, interesting. And of course, there's always the concern about what might happen to that uh, that mission and that corridor Absolutely. as well, because they've been targeted in the past. Uh, mention, you mentioned the banks. And, and again, this reminds us, I guess, of past crises that we have seen uh, around the world, whether it's a natural crisis and, or in this case, a military crisis and incursion and invasion in the case of Ukraine. Uh, the long lineups at the banks, people want to take their money out, basically, uh, because I guess they don't know where they're going to be and who's going to be controlling the banks in the near future. Yeah, we've seen that uh, here. We've seen that in Afghanistan very recently. Anywhere there is that kind of crisis, these banks and financial institutions kind of get shut down. And what you see when you go out into the street is the banks have cut back on their hours. Many of them aren't open on the weekends anymore. Uh, they're running few hours during the weekday. And of course, the city has ballooned in population, nearly doubled by uh, many estimates. And so the people uh, who are coming west to seek refuge are also trying to get their money out of banks, uh, bank accounts that were opened over in the east, and it's still their money. What happens is the banks don't have enough cash to float that kind of uh, withdrawal, and this causes massive lineups, people desperate to take money out. And of course, if the system shut down, if there's any interruption to the infrastructure and electricity or communications, the electronic transactions for credit cards and debit cards will also shut down. So it's always good to have that kind of hard currency on you. So it becomes a bit of a competition with everybody rushing around trying to get what resources they can. It's not been the worst I've seen, but it's sometime hours long outside the bank, especially if there's just been an aerate alert. And that's, of course, the instability of the banking system itself. It could be a net result of that, uh, which has got to be concerning that uh, when and if there's ever going to be any recovery process here after this, this terrible situation, they're not going to simply open the doors and say business as usual. This is going to have an impact on them for quite some time, I would think. 
Oh, for, for a very long time. I mean, a lot of those funds that are now in the banks are, of course, going to have to go to being rebuilt, uh, rebuilding the cities. They might, uh, you know, seek reparations from Russia if that happens, if they can get its uh, foreign investment coming in. But that's going to certainly clog up uh, these kinds of financial systems. Uh, it's going to clog up, um, you know, the food in, in cities as people move back through from Poland if they choose not to stay there. All these infrastructure systems are going to get choked for a very long time. If Russia retreated tomorrow, Ukraine still wouldn't get back to normal for quite some time. You talk to us about your your, your interpreter, uh, sort of your guide, uh, the, the gentleman who's who's walking around with you like this and, and being the liaison between uh, the places and the people that you want to see mm-hmm. right now. I, my understanding is that just not too long after you guys hooked up together, uh, he kind of brought home what the war is all about as he found a picture of a childhood friend's father. Right. Um, so his name, he goes by Ross in English. Uh, Ukraine is, is Rodislav. I met him here in Lviv and I hired him on as my interpreter. He was uh, living in uh, the United Kingdom at the time, spoke English very well, and he was taking me around and sort of telling me what everybody was saying. And I wanted to check out those churches to see the kind of cultural preservation that was going on. Uh, off to the side of, of one of the churches, a, a a Greek Catholic church here in the city called Saints Peter and Paul Garrison Church um, was a monument to the war dead. Uh, as we were walking up the aisle uh, to, to look through it, uh, Ross stops and points at this poster with this tiny picture. It's not a big picture because there's so many pictures on there and says, uh, that's my, my friend's father. Uh, he was killed in the shelling. And he tells me that uh, he hasn't heard from the same friend for days and days. Uh, she was in uh, Kharkov, I believe, and um, when the uh, assault on Kharkov started, he lost contact with her. So now not only does he know a man who I'm sure was very much like an uncle uh, to him growing up is now gone forever from this world, but he's also worrying that his friend is in the same predicament, and it's very tough to see. You mentioned social media a couple of minutes ago, which is uh, some people's source, sole source, really, of information. You go to these press briefings. You, you've talked to some of your colleagues, I'm sure, over there. Are we getting an accurate picture? I mean, it's, it's great that, that you've got some time to talk to us about this because it gives that our listeners that opportunity to, to, to get you know the, the truth about what's going on. But as you talked about uh, with us last week, there's a lot of misinformation and maybe some rather shoddy reporting about some things, too, which... Uh, you, you, one specific report I know you mentioned uh, had something to do with a report that actually talked uh, in their report uh, about where one of these training centers were to training uh, these people that are volunteering for the Ukraine uh, fighting cause here right now. And, you know, as the old adage goes, if you're listening to it, so is the enemy listening to it. That's mm-hmm. not the kind of reporting you like to see happen, is it? No, it's not. Um, I mean, very thankfully, that reporting didn't give an exact address, but it did mention uh, where these training centers were in the quote-unquote suburbs of Lviv, uh, which gives the enemy a very good idea of, you know, where to look or where to send assets to look or where to try to gather intelligence to look and launch strikes. And we do know Russia is launching strikes against uh, training centers. That was exactly why they uh, targeted uh, Yavariv uh, last week, was to a training base. The militia that's training there are everyday Ukrainians who are being taught to shoot AKs, uh, how to do some basic combat stuff in case they have to fortify locally here in Lviv and I guess relieve um, the military trained people who are back here so that they can move to the front. But of course that basically tells Russia, hey, if you want to choke up the logistics of this, start looking around here and start putting some missiles in these suburbs. And that's really uh, 
to me, it, it doesn't strike me as very responsible reporting. It, it goes back to the kind of adage uh, that we know from journalism of if it bleeds, it leads. And there's a point where you really have to ask yourself, do we want to staunch that bleeding just for today and maybe find a way to work around this? Because it's an important story, but I think it's also equally important that it be reported on response. You mentioned the, the, the volunteers just a couple of minutes ago, and it's, it's one of the stories that I think so many people find amazing. There are people not just within Ukraine, but of course from all over the world that are going back to their homeland and taking up arms. And I know you mentioned as, as you walk around the streets uh, with, uh, with Ross, uh, you'll see people going about their everyday business, but they've got an AK-47 uh, slung over their shoulder. How are those people being perceived by the public? Are they, are they looked on as heroes, as, as patriots, or are they... And they're not trained army, but they're there to, to defend the country. They're looked on as Ukrainians next door. Uh, these are people's brothers, their their friends, uh, their sisters. We do see a lot of uh, women in service here uh, as well, and it's it's interesting to see how integrated they are um, into the daily life of of these people. They're not treated as untouchable. They're not treated as on a pedestal. They're very clearly admired. I won't hesitate to say that but you'll just see the average everyday person come up and have a little chit chat with them as you might see them have a chit chat with anybody else on the street they'll wait in line to pick up burgers at the cafe with everybody else or go through the convenience store to pick up pop on their way home um, i saw a couple yesterday who were uh, taking selfies with a uh, former politician and rock star here in ukraine a fellow named uh, Fyatis, sorry sviatoslav vakarchuk here um, and they were just taking selfies like every other fan right in front of the press center. Um, it's it's absolutely amazing. I mean, there is a compulsory draft here, but it's absolutely amazing to see how integrated these people are into everyday life. We, we've story this morning, uh, well, this afternoon, of course, where you are right now in in, uh, in Ukraine. The uh, President Zelensky is actually, uh, I guess, put on the table about, okay, we're not going to attempt to join NATO anymore, and using that as the bargaining chip to try to end a ceasefire. Does that raise expectations that maybe this is going to come to an end sooner than later? It does. Um, it's been, whether Russia has meant it or not, um, it's been a major talking point of Russia. If that is the case, and it's it's certainly a way all Russia's bluff, if they're not seriously concerns about NATO, are the reason why they're doing this. Um, and it does sort of put Putin on the spot to really say, okay, this is my legitimate reason, and I, we might agree to a ceasefire, start backing down. Uh, it does raise those expectations. Does it necessarily push them past a sort of finish line where I go, okay, yeah, the end's in sight? No. Uh, but it, it's, it's hopeful. It's a first step. One of the first things I said was that I hope Zelensky is ready to make at least some concessions because if, I mean, quite frankly, Putin's acting like a mad dog, but the problem is that a mad dog cornered will bite very hard. Um, if he gives him a, a bit of a way out, that might off the aggression. Yeah, and we haven't heard the Russian response officially yet anyway on that. Matthew, thank you so much for the time again. As, as we've always mentioned uh, after your reporting, uh, please stay safe. And uh, we look forward to our next conversation, hopefully with some good news about what's going on. But thanks again for today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Look forward to coming take, back. Take care. Matthew Best, freelance journalist, uh, speaking to us from Lviv, Ukraine, and uh, mentioning that in some parts of the city, it's just business as usual, life as usual. Uh, except for the soldiers with the AK-47s walking around the streets ready to defend their city and their nation. And we mentioned the, the talks that are going on right now to try to find some sense of ceasefire, and we're certainly watching that with great interest. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a report that was on the Global News webpage yesterday that, uh, well, we should be concerned about, quite frankly. You know, when we talk about the uh, the convoy that was in Ottawa that, uh, that basically held the city hostage. We've talked about other things that have gone on. And the rhetorical question, I guess, a lot of us are asking, well, wasn't there intelligence about this? We have a lot of agencies, the RCMP, CSIS, and others that are supposed to be digging this information up and passing it on. But the report from Global indicates that uh, Canada's intelligence agencies have held back information from parliamentary oversight, uh, leading to at least one key watchdog committee saying, look, this could be compromised, their work could be compromised if this situation continues. Alex Boudelier, uh, national politics reporter for Global News, uh, is uh, joining us. Uh, he's the one that wrote the piece that's on the, the Global webpage. Uh, first of all, uh, on a very busy day in Ottawa, Alex, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, always a pleasure. What, what, what's going on here? How did, first of all, how did this story come to you? You know, we assume that there's a chain of command. We assume that there's channels of information. You know, these guys do the digging. Uh, you know, they pass this on to the committees. Uh, all precautions are taken or policies are decided. Why, why is this some information being held back right now? Well, you know, I think it's important to note, first of all, that this is a fairly new committee, right? Uh, it was created in 2017 by, by uh, the National Security Reform Set the uh, government brought in at the time. Uh, you know, up until then, we never really had any parliamentary oversight over the activities of our intelligence agencies. And it goes beyond just, you know, the RCMP and CSIS. It also includes, you know, departments like Global Affairs, um, Canadian Heritage, uh, a bunch of different, uh, you know, departments and agencies that, you know, sort of play in the national security, uh, you know, side of things. Um, so, you know, the, the story came to me actually by reviewing some you know, sort of routine documents that uh, the committee puts out, and they sort of flag this as, you know, the key risk to them being able to effectively provide oversight over, you know, the actions that our intelligence agencies do. Now, I should note that the, the committee says itself, you know, that they were still able to conduct their reviews, um, but they said, you know, if, if agencies and departments continue to sort of, um, you know, block their attempts to get all the documents and all the information they need, um, you know, the reviews themselves could be compromised, which is, you know, a dangerous thing. We give our intelligence agencies and law enforcement a lot of power, uh, and we expect a lot of transparency and accountability on the other side of that. So, you know, it's, it, it is a, it is a, a very important issue um, that we maybe don't pay attention to enough in our sort of day-to-day. If it were just one agency, though, mm-hmm. Alex, if you'd think, okay, there's an outlier. Maybe there's a problem going on. But as, as you're reporting, there were so many agencies that seem to have fallen in line with this. And are they sending a message here that we don't trust the committee? We don't think they're, they're an effective uh, body? No, I, I don't think so. I, I, again, I go back to that this is a fairly uh, new thing. I think, you know, agencies and departments uh, that work in national security have been, you know, long used to sort of working in the shadows without much um, oversight, especially oversight by parliament. So, you know, I think, I think they're still trying to, to sort of negotiate and sort of feel their way in the new reality. But at the same time, you know, it has been since 2017 that this committee has been operational. So you would think uh, by now those arrangements, you know, had been worked out and, you know, the, the agencies themselves would have gotten, you know, the marching orders from their political masters. This was brought up in 2018. It was brought up again in 2019, in 2020, and again in 2022. So this has been an ongoing issue. And, you know, we don't really have good insight as to why or what exactly is happening the committee itself won't say what agencies and departments are delaying or denying information. I talked to one expert who said, look, you know, the, the real issue here is 
the agencies and departments could be selectively releasing information to the committee. So, you know, maybe some not so flattering documents or not so flattering activities are being held back in order to sort of paint a rosier picture of the intelligence community than, than might necessarily be the reality. We don't know that, you know, that's speculation from, from observers. But at the same time, I think, you know, most of your listeners would agree that's a real threat um, that, you know, spies and, and, and national security law enforcement um, may not want to share the, the uh, more clandestine aspects of their, their occupations. Ah, and and I, I think that, well, uh, you've done the research on this, but that's kind of hitting the nail on the head, isn't it? Because historically, we've heard that scenario before, haven't we? I mean, dating all the way back to 9-11, you know, the, the CIA wasn't talking to the FBI, wasn't talking to this, wasn't it? They didn't want to share information. We've heard this time and time again, uh, that they, there's there's almost this mindset here that, well, this is our information. We don't want, I, I don't care if it's a parliamentary committee, I don't care if it's another security agency, uh, we're not sharing. Or they, we'll, sell, we'll give a little bit, but not everything that we know. Is, is that maybe what's going on here? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that, you know, look, this is intelligence and espionage, right? A, a good deal yeah. of it has to remain secret. Otherwise, we, you know, why would we have an intelligence and espionage agency in the first place, right? So it's not that, you know, necessarily we found some kind of you know, grand conspiracy to to block, you know, what's actually happening from the Canadian people. I think it's more so, you know, agencies not used to dealing with this level of oversight are trying to sort of feel their way through it and understand what their responsibilities are under the law. Because it's important to note, you know, the committee has a legal right to request almost all information, including uh, solicitor client information. The only thing they're really blocked from is cabinet confidence, which is supposed to be like the most secretive um, of our secrets. So uh, the other thing to note is just turning over information to the committee doesn't mean that, that then goes to the public. The reports that come out from the committee are scrubbed of any details that could jeopardize national security. Um, so, you know, that should give the agency some measure of comfort that, um, you know, the committee, you know, is, you know, does have the right to access this information and, and you know, provide a full report to the prime minister and eventually to the Canadian people. Cited in, in the piece that's on uh, globalnews.ca, uh, Alex, uh, about the 2018 incident that involved uh, former Conservative Cabinet Minister Tony Clement, who was uh, on this committee uh, yeah. and forced to resign after uh, the, the sexting and extortion uh, scandal that, that in which he was involved. Uh, is, is there a concern that, well, using the Clement example as, as a, a basis, that, that there's a security risk here? I mean, you know, you've been in Ottawa a long, long time, and from my friends up there in the Ottawa pool, I mean, you know, I know that some of these people I know, I've talked with uh, some former CSIS members too, that are saying, look, at, you give this thing to an elected official and, you know, and it's going to be on the front page of the Toronto Star the next day or on the global webpage. I mean, you know, the parliamentarians seem to leak like a sieve depending on how it, you know, beneficial it can be to pass that information on. Uh, is, is that still a problem? Well, you know, Parliament writ whole, probably. The National Security and Intelligence Committee, not really. They have very strict rules around that. Every member of the committee is security cleared. I can tell you I've been covering national security for almost a decade now. Uh, I have never had any national security information leaked to me by a parliamentarian. The people on this committee take that very seriously, and they have to if they're going to enjoy the trust of the intelligence community that's required to do their job. So, uh, you know, I can understand that some people in the national security space might feel that way, um, but I, I don't think that that's a fair assessment of how the committee has operated over the last five years. 
Uh, and as you point out in the piece, uh, in the Tony Clement situation, uh, the concern there was that he might have been a security risk. In other words, outside forces that knew about Clement's situation may have been able to leverage him, which is a far different scenario than just it being leaked. And, and that's happened. Right. We've seen that with other agencies as well. But you also talked uh, to to the chair of the committee, David Baghetti, who seemed to... Uh, I'm not suggesting he says this is no big deal, but he seems to think that the relationship between his committee and the security and intelligence community is is pretty strong. Yeah, and I'm you know without knowing the specifics, I would say you know that would be my assumption that you know the vast majority of you know intelligence uh, agencies and you know intelligence analysts uh, officials would you know cooperate, uh, and we've seen some some pretty detailed and pretty. You know, you know, not exactly kids' gloves reports coming out of this committee. They've been highly critical of some aspects of the intelligence community. But, you know, I, again, the, the, the risk becomes if they're not getting full access to the documents they believe that they need, the risk becomes that the picture that they paint is a little rosier than, you know, what they otherwise, otherwise might do if they had access to all the information that they require. Uh, there was some rumblings, I guess, in this committee, as you point out, uh, not too long ago, of course, and it had to do with the the fact that uh, the security aid and intelligence agencies maybe weren't being as forthcoming as they could have been and should have been to do with the uh, the, the situation of the two uh, fired Chinese scientists. Uh, and uh, I know a couple of the conservatives uh, resigned from the committee, as you reported in your piece. They're back. Well, the, there are conservatives back. I think I understand it's, it's different conservatives now. Are, are they all playing nicely in the sandbox now? Uh, it's too early to say. The conservatives just ended a, their boycott, uh, I believe, last month. I don't know. 2022 has been a bit of a blur up here, Bill, as you can imagine. Yeah, I can um, imagine. But I think it was only a few weeks ago that they ended their boycott. I should note that it wasn't the intelligence community's decision to withhold any documents from Parliament concerning the, the Winnipeg lab situation. That was a political decision, and uh, and rightfully so. Um, and so, so I, I don't think that has much of a bearing on the operation of this committee. I think it's probably best now that there's representation from the official opposition on the committee, just in order to, you know, um, give more legitimacy to the fact that, you know, all sort of, you know, recognized parties in the House of Commons have a role to play in, o- in oversight of our national intelligence com- uh, community. Uh, with uh, Alex Boudelier, uh, national politics reporter for uh, Global News. Mm-hmm. Alex, you've been on the Hill for a long time. Just if I could pivot for just a second to the news that broke late last night, of course, about the deal between the NDP and the, and the governing liberals. Uh, yeah. What's the word on Parliament Hill? How's that being received? I, I mean, we've seen uh, already some quotes from uh, from Candace Bergen, the uh, interim leader of the uh, Conservative Party and uh, others about this right now. Uh, it, this, I guess, didn't come as a real surprise because we knew there were some negotiations that were going on for some time, didn't we? Yeah, I would say it's a surprise that they arrived to, a, you know, any kind of a formal deal. Uh, so so the deal as it stands is, a, is what's known as a confidence and supply uh, arrangement. In other words, any confidence vote, so any, you know, budget, for instance, that, uh, you know, would otherwise bring down the government if, if the vote failed, um, the NDP are going to support the Liberals in those votes. That doesn't mean that we have a coalition government with, you know, NDP around the cabinet table. It doesn't mean that, that Jagmeet Singh becomes a deputy prime minister, as, as uh, Ms. Bergen uh, suggested in her press conference today. It simply means that, you know, barring any sort of breakdown in that arrangement, uh, we're not going to have a federal election until 2025, and the Liberals can be relatively, you know, assured in their ability to continue governing until that point. You know, it's interesting that the Conservatives appear uh, so upset about this, because my take is actually that this really benefits the next conservative leader. 
you know, part of the thing that hampered Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole is from day one, they had to be ready for an election. The next conservative leader, when they're selected in September, will have, you know, the better part of two and a half years to bring in their own people, to overhaul the party apparatus, to build up their campaign campaign machine, to get some name recognition in, in you know, the wider Canadian electorate. You know, I, I, I honestly think that there's a, a pretty big silver lining for the Conservatives in this. Of course, that's not what they're going to say publicly. What they're going to say publicly is this is some kind of NDP-led liberal government and Justin Trudeau is power mad and will ha- do anything to hang on to power. We got a taste of that this morning with Ms. Bergen's uh, press conference. But really, uh, you know, I think arguably one of the biggest winners in, in this is the next Conservative leader. Yeah, and Pierre Polyev is saying, you know, he's taking Canadians' rights away by just striking this deal with the, at the Mr. Singh. I, I don't quite know what rights he's talking about. Which is just not true. It's, that's yeah, just exactly. Not true. Exactly. Yeah. I, but, you know, we saw this whole thing, too, and uh, the ill-fated uh, coalition, I guess, the proposed coalition, anyway, between Jack Layton and uh, Gilles Duceppe and, uh, and, in that case, Stefan Dion. You know, they they basically said they were going to form the government, and uh, they immediately Stephen Harper first of all said it was unconstitutional. It wasn't. It may not have been the right thing to do, but I mean, they well were within their rights to that, and that ended up forcing into an election. So I, I guess the opposition feels as if it's their job to simply say, okay, this is bad, and here's why it's bad, and if there's no substantive reason why it's bad, uh, make one up, because uh, their followers are going to believe it. That seems to be uh, one of the political mantras, I guess, that seems to prevail in Ottawa these days. Well, and but 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 to your point, you know, it gives the next conservative leader a pretty big cudgel to hammer, you know, the the liberals on in the lead up to the next election, right? There are going to be people who think that this is not legitimate, that this is inappropriate. I'm not passing judgment on you know either side of that debate. There will be there will be people you know from the liberals who are disaffected by this, who want to see a more fiscally uh, conservative uh, liberal party, who want to see um, you know the the party tack more to the center. Um, there are going to be people in the NDP who are upset about this, uh, you know, seeing it as, a, you know, a capitulation to um, the Liberal government uh, and propping it up for, for years. Although I should note that Jack Layton propped up the Conservative government under Stephen Harper for years as well. Uh, so this isn't exactly new for the NDP. But nevertheless, you know, without passing judgment on whether this is right or proper, um, it's, you know, it's something that has been done in the parliamentary system before. And, you know, again, it gives the Conservatives a big cudgel to to hammer the Liberal government over the next six, eight months as they as they select their next leader. I, I just got a few seconds left here, but I got to get your, your read on something with your experience on the Hill. Sure. Mr. Polly have also said that he was going to attack this if he becomes the next leader of the Conservative Party by lobbying the backbenchers of both the Liberals and NDP because he knows that they're not really supportive of this. This is really where the party whips come in in situations like this. Uh, is there fertile ground there for Polyev's idea here, or is it, are these guys going to stay uh, you know, in line with what, what the deal is here? No, it's not fertile ground. I, I, can't, <laughs> I, can't, imagine, I can't imagine any critical mass um, of liberal or NDP backbenchers. You know, they might, be, they might be upset about it. They might speak out about it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, they, they have an agreement between the two parties and, you know, confidence matters are going to be treated as confidence matters. You know, I would be very surprised, uh, no disrespect to Mr. Polyev, to see some sort of mass exodus from, from either the Progressive Party's backbench. A busy day on the Hill today, Alex. Thanks for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Anytime.
Take care. Alex Pudelier, the national politics reporter for Global News. By the way, you can see a story on the Global uh, webpage, globalnews.ca, about the security issues. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, they've uh, done some number crunching up in the nation's capital, and uh, the city of Ottawa now says that the anti-government protests that clogged much of the downtown and streets around Parliament Hill for more than three weeks uh, cost the city about $36 million. Stephanie Taylor has details. Nearly all of the $36 million in costs came from policing, which included help from the RCMP. The bill says the city had to pay police wages and accommodations for officers who were brought in from out of town. It also includes the cost of supplies and food. The price tag may still grow yet, as the bill doesn't include the cost of repairing damages done to infrastructure. As for how to pay for it all, city staff plan to ask the province and federal government for help. Stephanie Taylor, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. As late as yesterday on social media, I still saw some posts from people that suggested that what happened in Ottawa was just a bunch of friendly protesters exercising their democratic right, and they didn't cause any of the damage uh, that Stephanie talked about in her report. It was other people that did that. And as a matter of fact, some of them suggesting it was all a setup to try to make the uh, the protesters look bad. Well, uh, Justin Ling has done a great deal of uh, research into this. Justin, of course, is a freelance investigative journalist. His report latest one called, Was It Really About Vaccine Mandates or Something Darker? The Inside Story of the Convoy Protest. It appeared in last weekend's uh, Toronto Star. And uh, Justin joins us here at the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Justin, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for jumping on today. Good morning, Bill. There were some who I guess are going to believe what they're going to believe about this, but uh, they are still clinging to this idea that these were just nice, friendly people. You know, they they just went up there to express their views and they had nothing at all to do with any uh, ulterior motives. Uh, you've done a lot of work in this, and, and maybe give us uh, the gist of this, uh, that, that about who was behind this and what their real goals were. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with saying that a ton of the people who came out, uh, certainly to protest the first weekend, and maybe even some of the people who stuck around for the weeks that followed, that they were well-intentioned, that they were earnest, because I actually think that's probably the case for a ton of them. But we also have to recognize uh, why they were there and fundamentally what drove them to to occupying the capital, to driving from across the country to do this. And it, it is just not the case that they were motivated just by these vaccine mandates or just vaccine mandates for truckers or the, the vaccine passport or what have you. If you really dig in to what the organizers were saying, how they convinced people to turn out and how those occupiers actually described their own mission, it becomes abundantly clear that this was seen as a fundamental struggle against an, an, an encroaching tyranny, right? You know, this wasn't just I oppose the vaccine mandates. It was these vaccine mandates are step one on what will be the end of our democracy, on what is a concerted effort by foreign actors to work with our complicit government to eviscerate our civil liberties and revoke our freedoms and impose a sort of perpetual lockdown, the style of which we've seen in in China and elsewhere. And I think when you start realizing that this is not just about a single set of policy uh, disagreements, but in fact, a belief that our democratic system is inherently corrupted and, and infiltrated by these foreign actors. I think when you realize that, you start to realize that 
it's why people went to the such lengths as they did. It's why people were so sort of uh, hysterical in in their in their opposition, and it's why they were so entrenched in in their decision to stay in the capital. And again, I think a ton of people who were involved in this are misled and to some degree radicalized. Uh, by the peddlers of these conspiracy theories. Uh, but I still think that uh, many of them believe that they are, you know, legitimately struggling for our democracy, legitimately fighting for freedom. Um, and, but we do have to kind of confront this reality and speak honestly about it, or else this is going to keep getting worse. It's a, a valid point. I, I, I was fascinated by the piece that uh, that you published in the Toronto Star about this. And, and there are, you need only spend five minutes on social media to understand that there are a number of different individuals and many, many more groups that believe some or all of, the, of those sorts of theories that you've just described. How do you, how did it coalesce into this one movement mm. that, that, that we're all going to show up in Ottawa? And well, one of the stated purposes there was to, to basically take the government out. Yes, yeah, so, so, you know, there, there's a bunch of different groups that are working to different ends uh, over the past number of years. Uh, think back to 2019, uh, there was the United We Roll convoy that went to Ottawa, mostly in protest of the carbon pricing scheme, uh, but also just in opposition to Trudeau uh, writ large. Several of the organizers and participants in that convoy uh, also came out to Ottawa this past few months. Um, you can point to somebody like Tom Quiggin, this self-styled intelligence expert who has spent many years peddling the idea that there is a globalist plot to destroy our democracy and they are working with um, the sort of fifth column of Muslims in this country, uh, which he describes as sort of a radical group of individuals. And he's actually been sued uh, for alleging that a number of prominent and, and, and very well-respected Muslims in this country are in fact the face of the Muslim Brotherhood and have ties to terrorism, which is completely not based in reality. Well, he came out to the occupation. Um, the guy who uh, produces his podcast Podcast. Uh, Benjamin Ditchter was the spokesperson for the occupation. Tamara Leach, who uh, organized the GoFundMe that raised uh, $10 million, actually twice over, um, she helped produce some of his events. So many of these individuals have been kind of in the same circles for quite some time. You know, others, uh, a guy like Norman Traversi is a you know, ardent QAnon believer um, who has tried to get the prime minister arrested and charged for crimes against humanity and human trafficking and a bunch of other things. Well, one of the folks who helped uh, organize his big rally on Parliament Hill last year was Pat King, another one of the prominent organizers of this most recent convoy. Well, these people have all kind of worked to different ends in, in different kind of silos for a number of years. They didn't really collaborate as best anyone can tell up until this point. A guy named James Bowder organized this uh, this convoy. He tried it last year. It didn't go very well, but he tried again early this year. And he just brought on board all of these disparate groups. Pat King, Tamara Leach, Benjamin Ditchter, um, Tom Quiggin, uh, Norman Traversi. All these people came out and became the sort of core organizing crew who made this thing possible. And they were joined by a litany of different groups. Um, everything from a group called Action for Canada, who has sued the federal government alleging that they are participating in Bill Gates's microchipping of the population. Groups like uh, No More Lockdowns, um, On Guard for Thee, which represents police officers who refuse to get vaccinated. So there's all these different groups that have just finally come under the same banner. But, but I can promise you, uh, the vast majority, if not almost every single one, has espoused this idea that this uh, foreign cabal are working is working to destroy our democracy, and they point specifically to the World Economic Forum as the culprit for that. And this 
allegation, this conspiracy theory became ubiquitous in Ottawa. I heard it on the street. I saw it on signs. I saw it taped um, on and decals on cars. I saw I, I saw it on people's Facebook. I heard it on the press conferences. I saw it on stage when people were speaking to the crowd. I heard people chanting it. It was absolutely everywhere. I can't tell you the degree to which this is probably the single most common thing I heard mentioned by the folks who encamped in downtown Ottawa. It was if you really pushed them. Yeah, vaccine mandates at first, but uh, the more you chat with them, the more they say, you know, this is about stopping the World Economics Forum's plot to to remove our democracy. And, and we heard variations on that long before the vaccine issue, because sure. there was no vaccine initially, as, as you you and I've talked about in the past, uh, you know, that said this whole COVID-19 COVID thing was, was just, a, 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 as you say, a massive uh, global plot, uh, you know, part of the subversive activity. To use that same analogy, I mean, for a virus to succeed and to thrive, it needs a host. Uh, so that those viruses, if we consider that analogy, were out there. How did they find this host? How did they decide this is the, the group we're going to latch on to? This is the group we're going to use uh, to, to, to get our message to Ottawa? It's, I mean, it's actually an interesting question because I, I, I think the folks who came out to Ottawa were an interesting cross-section, right? So some of them were longtime conspiracy theorists, right? So there's representations from QAnon there. There's representations from um, the far right, from extremist groups. But I, I actually would, would hazard a guess and say the majority of folks there were probably not steeped in conspiracy theories or at least not adamant about them prior to this convoy and occupation. I think there's a ton of people there who probably digest some, some you know, less trustworthy media, things like The Rebel, um, things like Druthers newspaper, which is an anti-vax paper. Um, I, I don't doubt that some people are kind of, you know, reading some of this material, but I think probably one of the biggest motivating factors for a ton of the people who came out was, was personal trauma. It's one thing I heard time and time again, talking to people, listening to people, listening to their stories. It's this idea that people have lost friends to suicide during the pandemic. They've lost people to the virus. They've lost their business. They've lost, lost their job. They, their relationship fell apart. There's this real feeling of a loss that I heard from, from a ton of people there. And they channeled that frustration into uh, the vaccine passports, into the lockdown, into the vaccine mandates. Uh, and I think when you decide that that is your target, you start finding common cause with a ton of people who who are offering to spin you a bit of a tail, right? So you know, you're frustrated because you've your relationship is ended because you don't trust the vaccine and don't want to get vaccinated. Well, you can find common cause and find you know compatriots and sympathy in a group of people who are similarly opposed to the vaccine mandates. And when you get there, they say, by the way. The real culprit for all of this is the World Economic Forum, right? So you know, a ton of these people are looking for validation in their distrust of these institutions, and they're finding it in these sorts of groups who are saying, you know, yeah, listen, the, the, the vaccine doesn't work. Uh, the virus is fake or it's manufactured. You know, this is all a plan that was cooked up in Davos, Switzerland by Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, and Justin Trudeau is in on it, and here's some video, and here's some articles that proves it all. Come join us. We're going to Ottawa to finally take a stand. I think that's how a ton of people got into this, this mess, and I, I, I think there's something very 
you know, quite sad about it. It's also strangely noble. You know, I think these people are misinformed and they're in many cases radicalized, but they're doing what they think is right. Like they genuinely believe they're fighting for democracy and there's something kind of admirable about that. It, it would just be nice if we could find a way to make that a little more constructive as opposed to, um, you know, raging against, uh, you know, shadows. I mean, there's always going to be opposition and people that disagree with the government decisions, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's been you know, threaded right mm-hmm. through history. And I, I, I think I agree with your point totally that a lot of the people that were protesting, you know, were not of that mind. I mean, look, I, you know, there was a protest in Hamilton as they were rolling through this area. I know some of the people that were down there protesting and they're smart, reasonable people. Uh, they just seem to have a different point of view. And But when do you get to the point, and, and you talked to a lot of these folks when you were there as this was happening, to be militant about it. That's usually not the Canadian way, uh, but it mm. seems to be almost the norm for some of these groups now. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think a lot of them took to heart the idea that this was not militant per se, but this was a big party. And, and you know, again, it, it's about kind of the, the stories we tell ourselves, right? So when you got to Ottawa, um, and you set up camp or you got a hotel and, you know, parked your car on Wellington Street or whatever, um, you participated in what was, in your eyes, a, a great big party. There was a bouncy castle, there was a stage, there was a DJ booth. And, you, you know, if if you were watching the news, you might hear how a lot of this impacted people in the city, how the noise and the harassment and, 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 and you know, the, the kind of unsavory edges of this whole thing made life in that city untenable. But if you don't trust the mainstream media and you instead only read outlets that uh, were you know, unfailingly and, un, un, you know, consistently positive about the occupation, and you only watched live streams from people who wanted to show the positive side of the occupation, and you only talked to other people who were there as part of the occupation, you get a very different story. You get a very different uh, window into what's really happening, and it's much easier to rationalize what you're doing, not as militancy, but as, as legitimate protest, right? And it even goes all the way down to the folks who were arrested in Alberta, right? You know, the folks who were arrested in Alberta had ties to some of to some of the organizers in Ottawa or some of the the, the most prominent activists in Ottawa. And they were arrested with a cache of weapons and allegedly planned to kill a number of RCMP officers. Well, there was a ton of people in, you know, in the occupation in Ottawa. I even talked to a member of parliament, all of whom said, oh, no, 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 they weren't part of our movement. They were something separate. They were, they were different. And this constantly happens, you know, this idea that anyone who does anything bad, well, well, they're not a true member of, of the occupation. They're not a real uh, protester. We're doing it peacefully. If you're not being peaceful, you're not a member of our movement. Um, and that is a complete abrogation of their own responsibility here. But I think it's the way in which they, they kind of rationalize to themselves that, that, that this occupation was legitimate, peaceful, and, and sort of fun-loving. You mentioned Jason LaFace in, in your piece, mm-hmm. who was uh, host of the Canada Unity official podcast. And, and, and this is where I, I guess some people are just trying to, you know, make this connection here. You know, take it, you know, that, okay, there were some people there that just were against vaccines. There were some people there that hated Justin Trudeau. Get that. And, you know, they're all coming together. You know, they may have different motivations for it. But when a guy like LaFace uh, who on his podcast says, when we get to Ottawa, we're not leaving until Justin Trudeau leaves government and the liberal government is dissolved. If that's the stated purpose and they, that's not your cause, are you comfortable with that sense of extremism? Or do you say, well, I guess, okay, we'll do that. 
or do you try to separate yourself? Because I didn't see too many people trying to separate themselves from some of these comments about, you know, getting Trudeau out of them. Well, I mean, one of them saying, if Trudeau, you're going to get a bullet someday. Uh, then mm. Those are the sorts of things that usually Canadians, sensible Canadians anyway, would not even consider. Uh, yet they seem to be commonplace, and they were commonplace as this was going on in Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, that's the reality of it. I mean, I, I talked to people who were furious at the media who said, listen, we don't want to overthrow the government. Where are you getting this? this? This is total nonsense. No one here saying we want to overthrow the government. And you start pointing to things in the occupation, you know, a document that the organizers brought with them that says that um, basically the House of Commons should be overruled and that, um, you know, policy should be dictated by the Senate Governor General and the leadership of the occupation, right? Ludicrous. You get those comments from Jason LaFay saying that they want to remove the Prime Minister when they get there. Um, you get repeated comments from other, organizing, uh, organ other organizers saying they expect to see Trudeau's resignation letter when they arrive. Um, you see nooses um, with uh, Trudeau's name, Trudeau's face and pictures next to them. You, you, you see um, signs and chants saying that he should be, the Prime Minister should be arrested and tried for treason. You know, you have to ignore an awful lot to come to the idea that they did not have any interest in removing the government. Now, some of them try to explain it away in saying, oh, well, no, 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 we want to remove him legitimately and democratically, not through force, which you know, that feels like a distinction without a difference to some degree. Um, you know, there, there's people who say, no, 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 oh, that's only some of the organizers. We don't believe in the organizers. We're here for our own thing. But but again, you, you're letting them speak for you. You're letting them hold press conferences. You're, you're asking that they negotiate with the government. So it, it, is, it, it requires a lot of kind of creative thinking to, to sort of distance yourself from that while remaining a part of the occupation. But it's what a lot of people did. And again, it's a lot easier to do when you live in an information bubble that constantly reinforces the idea of what you're doing is, is right and just and, and credible. What's more, you know, I think we also had a real, we had too much credulity, right? When we, when it came to actually listening to these people, you know, the number of people, here, I'll give you an example. You know, I wrote this piece on Saturday. I, I ended up meeting somebody um, socially who, who was actually at the occupation for a little bit. And he said, listen, I don't know where you people are getting all this stuff. I never heard anyone talk about overthrowing the government. You know, everyone there was just about the vaccine mandates, all the stuff about the World Economic Forum. It's, it's ridiculous. I don't know what you're talking about. Throughout the conversation, by the end, he was saying, listen, the World Economic Forum has a really malign influence on our government. You know, the, 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 the vaccines don't work. And COVID-19 uh, was created in a lab by the Chinese. A at a certain point, you have to sort of realize that people are trying to convince you. They're trying to sell you something, right? They're, they're giving you talking points. They're giving you a sort of manicured version of what they believe and what they stand for. And you have to poke through that in the same way that you can't go to a po political press conference and trust every single thing that a politician says to you. You have to uh, kind of go at these people with a level of skepticism, because sometimes when they say to you, this is really about vaccine mandates, doesn't mean it's actually about vaccine mandates. Maybe there's something else going on. You just have to sort of poke at. And, and I think a ton of my colleagues didn't do that, to be totally honest. I think a ton of my colleagues heard them say, this is about vaccine mandates, and then walked away thinking, well, it must be about vaccine mandates. Yeah, uh, and it takes some probing and some some work, as, as you have done, and that's uh, the reputation, of course, that you have. Uh, it's a great piece. Uh, you can uh, go back uh, to last Saturday's the Toronto Star uh, March 19th and uh, check out the article yourself. Very extensive. Justin, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill.
Take care. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist with, uh, well, an informative evaluation of what went on in Ottawa during those protests. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.